Today's reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, from verse 14 through to chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Uh, I wonder if you've ever seen this program on TV. It's called The Repair Shop. You can guess what it's about. Uh, Peter Crook put me onto this uh, some years back. It's a wonderful TV program where something that's old and battered, um, damaged, discolored, decaying, gets restored. Here are the main characters, Jay. Uh, Jay is the leader of the pack. He's a remarkable furniture restorer and maker. Uh, there's Stephen, who is a horologist. I had to look up that word. It means he's really good with pieces, uh, timepieces, things that tell us the time, things that have uh, clockwork actions on the inside. Remarkable. He's the one with the flip down glasses from magnification. Then, then there's Kirsten. Uh, Kirsten was the star of the episode that I sh saw when there was this pretty ugly looking ceramic pug dog and its uh, ear was broken off. I think its tail was as well. And, and she was remarkable with the, this clay that she um, put back uh, together in her hands and formed it into the right shape. And then she glued it on and then she did some remarkable uh, painting to fit it in with what was already there. And then there's Will. If there's anything made from wood that is broken or damaged, is there anything that needs being replaced, whether it's furniture or even a chessboard or something like that? If it's made from wood, Will is your man. I think he's the youngest member of the repair shop and arguably he's got the greatest skill set, but I'm not sure. <clears throat> it's a great program. It's an iPlayer. Why not have a look? Um, but I tell you that because... One of the attractions of the program is the restoration and the repairing of something that is beautiful that's been damaged. It's not just a, a marvel at the skill set of the women and the men on board of the program, but it, it's the fact that it reveals to us that our hearts are drawn to what is beautiful. Whether it be a, a relationship, a person, whether it be a sunrise or a sunset, whether it be an object, our, our hearts are made to be drawn to something that's beautiful, something that's beautiful. And it's drawn away, our hearts are drawn away from God and we love something else more than God, not because he's not beautiful, but because we don't see how beautiful he really is. And the aim of this series in the month of January I think we're still in January. I think we are. Um, but the aim of this series in the month of January is to restore our view of who Jesus is. It's been damaged and distorted and decayed and we need it repaired. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's been helping us to repair our view and understanding of Jesus, 
Today, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, because there's lots of different things that damage and decay and mar our view of who Jesus is. We don't see him as beautiful as he truly is. And if we don't see Jesus as beautiful, then we won't enjoy our relationship with God the way it's intended to be enjoyed. We won't see God as altogether lovely, altogether worthy, the only one who's to be praised. But when we do, we'll worship him as he deserves and stop uh, our heart's affections running towards other sources. So not Matthew today, but in the book of Hebrews, we've considered how Jesus is gentle and lowly and of heart and of character. We've seen that Jesus is our closest friend. He will never desert us. He's done all the running and everything that's needed to enhance and make a friendship with us possible and to restore our relationship with God. But today the image is not of gentle and lowly or friendship. Today from the book of Hebrews, it shows us that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, it's not something we uh, said this morning when we woke up. My greatest need today is that Jesus is my great high priest. I'm sure you haven't thought about that much this week, but the Bible says we need a great high priest. The book of Hebrews shows that. The whole Bible does. And I want to show to you this morning from the book of Hebrews why it's so important that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, the high priest was the person in the Old Testament, especially, who represented God before the people. God before the people. They taught God's law to the people. They were involved in discerning God's will at key points in the history of, is of, of Israel. But their main job was to represent the people before God. So they represented God before the people, but their main job was to represent the people before God. And, and to do that, they had ceremonial duties and ceremonial clothes that they would wear. They, they had a headdress, the high priest. They had a, an ephod, which was a linen garment. And on top of the linen garment, there was a gold ephod that had 12 precious jewels um, placed upon it. One precious jewel for every of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the book of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is not just a high priest. He is the great high priest. He's the one that all the other high priests in the Old Testament pointed to. He's the last, the greatest, the final, the truest, the perfect, the only great high priest we need. And uh, that theme runs throughout the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 4, but I want us to turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. It's on the screen. This is where the theme is introduced. Let me read it to you. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's what the writer is saying. The writer is saying Jesus came to earth to be our great high priest. And he did two, at least two things, two things. 
as he came to earth as our great high priest. It's the, the theme of sacrifice that we're going to look at first. And then it's the, the, uh, the theme of sympathy. So two S's. Sacrifice, that's the first theme. Sympathy, that's the second theme. Here's the first point. Jesus is our great high priest. He came to offer a sacrifice for us. He came to offer a, a sacrifice for us. It's in verse 17 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ, this is what the gospel claims. You can see it on the screen. Jesus offered himself to make atonement for us. He offered himself to satisfy God's wrath. Our sins had aroused God's wrath. God's unusual activity is to have wrath towards his people. And God's wrath, the Bible explains, is God's settled, measured, appropriate anger against our sin. And Jesus offered himself to take God's wrath upon himself and so to take God's wrath away from us. It was upon him, so it was away from us. And this is an image from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, which describes the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest, the one with the headdress, a male from Aaron's tribe, a male who was a, a Levite, he wore a linen uh, garment. He had the ephod representing God's people, and he would enter into the most holy place with the blood of an animal sacrifice. And he would uh, symbolically transfer the sins of the whole nation, all of God's people, onto one animal. And that animal would die in place of God's people, bearing the judgment of God against their wrath. And the high priest would make many daily sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. But once a year, he would make this uber, this grand, this one-off sacrifice annually on the Day of Atonement. He went into the presence of God with the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. And so God would see the blood of the sacrifice and forgive his people. God's wrath was appeased. It was satisfied. And it's pointing forward to Jesus. When the high priest in the Old Testament, he would repeat this sacrifice once a year, every year. It was like a rhythmical drumbeat as the calendars turned on the day of atonement the high priest would be making preparations once a year to atone for all the sins of God's people and then Jesus in the gospels and Jesus explained in the book of Hebrews says I don't come annually to make a sacrifice for sin I've come and I'll do it once and for all and I won't use the blood of bulls and of goats but I the sinless son of God offer myself the one who John said look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that was Jesus Jesus who gave his very life he sacrificed not another animal he sacrificed himself which is why he's the true and the better high priest that theme is picked up not in chapter four, but in chapter seven as well of the book of Hebrews, chapter seven, verse 26. It says this, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices 
day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Do you see what that's saying? Jesus does not need to make any further sacrifice for his own sins. He never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He's the unstained and sinless sacrifice that God has provided for his people. And our sins are removed away from us and onto him once and for all, never to be repeated. God's wrath is taken upon his son and away from us. Jesus, the sinless one, dies in the sinner's place so that the wrath of God is satisfied. He's making atonement. God's wrath is appeased and satisfied. And all who have Jesus as their great high priest, their sins have been forgiven and they've been reconciled to God. Two things at the same time. So you woke up this morning and I'm sure you weren't thinking about this. You may have thought my greatest need this morning is caffeine and I need a lot of it and I need it now. I might use it to brush my teeth. That's how much I need it. I need to wake up. I need to jumpstart my heart. My greatest need this morning, says someone else, he's not a caffeine addict, is a holiday. I need a holiday. I need to get out of these four walls and I want to go somewhere where it's not rainy. I want to go somewhere where it's warm. My greatest need is caffeine. It's holiday. My greatest need is a COVID vaccination. I want both parts and I want them as soon as possible. And the Bible says those are not your greatest needs. Your greatest need this morning is that you have a high priest a great high priest, someone who takes away your sin so that your relationship with God can be restored, someone who can cleanse your conscience, someone who can deal with your guilt, deal with your past so that we can be reconciled, we can be rejoined and reunited to God. And the only one who can do that is Jesus, says the whole Bible. He made himself a sacrifice for our sins. We will get to chapter four shortly, I assure you. But he's the only one who can offer a sacrifice for sins because he is sinless himself and he saves us to the uttermost. But Hebrews 2 tells us one more thing before we get to Hebrews chapter four, and it's this. He didn't just offer a sacrifice, meanings, meaning he offers himself. Jesus as our great high priest, he offers a sacrifice, but he's also sympathetic towards us. He's sympathetic towards us. It says that in verse 18. That's the second point. Jesus is sympathetic towards us. Verse 18 of chapter 2. It says this, Jesus took on flesh and blood. It wasn't a mirage. It wasn't a sham or a show. It wasn't magic. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and he came to earth and he took on the fullness of a human being. Jesus grew. He was tempted in every way so that when we face suffering and hardship and difficulty and temptation, he might be the merciful high priest who can help us in our time of suffering because he's faced everything that we have faced. He came to make a sacrifice, but he also came to go through every human experience that we face so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses, in our times of loneliness, in our times of anxiety and fear and in our times of need. 
Now we get to our passage. Remember these two words, sacrifice and sympathy. Hebrews 5.1, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's the theme of sacrifice. Here's the theme of sympathy. Please look at it with me. Verse 15 of chapter four, sympathy. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what Jesus as high priest is all about. It's sacrificial offering, but it's also sympathy. And that's the burden of the passage of chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 2. The whole of that little section is grounded on chapter 4, verse 15. It supports verse 14 that goes before it. It's the foundation of verse 16 of chapter 4 that follows it. Jesus came and he stepped into our shoes so that he can sympathize with you or me in our struggles and in everything we're going through in 2020 in chapter in year 2021 and on into the future as well as in the past past as well the gospels reveal to us the character of jesus which therefore is the character of god jesus is the one who taught with authority he taught because he wanted people to understand where they were falling short in the goodness and promises that God his father had made. Jesus is the one that welcomed the outcast. We thought about that last week. Jesus is the one that asks boys and girls to come and sit on his lap because he has a heart for children. Jesus is the one who wept in the face of death. Jesus is the one who restored Peter, who turned his back on him and let him down when he denied him. And chapter four, verses 14 to 16, is like the repair shop. It's there to restore our relationship with God through Jesus. It's there to clear away all the muck and uh, dust and misconception and distrust. When we think of Jesus wrongly, we need to see again his heart. We must have a clear perception of who Jesus is so that we might feel his heart and how it beats for us. We might sense his tenderness towards us. That's the words of Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan. He wants us, the writer to the book of Hebrews, to see and sense God's heart in Jesus towards us, both in our suffering and in our sinning. We're going to look at those two things. God's heart towards us, shown in Jesus as we suffer and when we sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. God's tenderness shown to us in the heart of Jesus when we suffer. That's chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. That word sympathy means to suffer with. You see the picture on the screen? Jesus never points the finger at us and laughs. 
He never turns his back and walks away. To have sympathy from verse 15 of Hebrews 4 shows us it means to feel what the other person is feeling. It means you suffer when the other person is suffering. It's not just that Jesus sees what we're facing and kind of says, good luck, all the best, see you soon. Jesus is not like that. Jesus feels what we feel. He struggles when we struggle. He's alongside us in the midst of every hardship, every time we wake up in the middle of the night, every tear we shed. Jesus is not far off. Chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus is with us in our sufferings. He's not emotionally detached. He's not uh, kind of brewing up some anger towards us. He knows what we are suffering because he himself has suffered and no one has suffered like him. He's experienced every emotion that we have ever faced and ever will face. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that. It's not as if God is like Zeus. Here's a quote on the screen from the book that's inspiring this series, written by Dane Ortland. Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared on the cover of Men's Health. He had no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53, verse 2. He came as a normal man to normal men, and he knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it's like to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. He who will never unfriend us. Did you hear that? Jesus's heart is not withdrawn. He's not standing aback. He's not looking from afar. Jesus is with us in our sufferings, in our disappointments, when we're overlooked, when we experience injustice, when our friends turn our back on us. Jesus never will. He's with us in our sufferings. By faith, we are united to him. We've been united with Christ, but also that means he is united to us. It's a union with Christ where we are joined together with our Savior by faith. That means what we feel, he feels. He's so taken us into his heart. I mean, that explains what happens and what Jesus says when he meets Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we read the words from the lips of Jesus as he speaks from the heavens to Saul, who's been harming and killing, disrupting and persecuting the church. This is what Jesus says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, when you hurt the church on earth, you are hurting me. I'm so united in my heart to them that every Christian you arrange to be murdered, Saul, that means you are wounding and hurting me. Every time you oppose them, you're opposing me and nothing has changed. By faith, we are united with Christ and he is united to us. 
which means when we suffer, he experiences our suffering. He's not cold. He's not unaffected. Jesus suffers with us, but he also sympathizes with us. It's there in chapter five, verse two. Jesus suffers with us, and he also is with us when we sin. Now, where does it say that? Chapter five, verse two of the book of Hebrews. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Jesus feels towards you when you are sinning? Is he angry? Is he irritated? Is he cross? Hebrews 5.2 tells us he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That word ignorant literally means those who sin by accident because of our shared human nature. We are in Adam. Therefore, we have a sin filled human nature from the moment we're born. That means ignorant. But also notice it says going astray, 5-2. To go astray, that means more a sense of those who sin and go on sinning because they want to, because we're rebels, because we're thumbing our nose at God, we're turning our back on him. So you can sin because it's part of our human nature. You can also sin because we're rebellious and we don't want to come under God's loving and kind rule. And verse 2 says, this is how... Jesus deals with us when we sin. Jesus deals with us gently. Jesus is not harsh. He's not cold. He's not far away. Jesus, our true and better, our great high priest, who's felt the full force of temptation, but who did not give in. He endured it to the end and he knows the power and temptation of sin. And yet he does not turn his back on us. Now, I don't want you to try this at home, but maybe if there is a tea light on at your uh, kitchen table, maybe sometimes you think, I wonder how hot it is. And you put your hand perhaps a few inches away from the flame and you feel its warmth and the warmth grows and it's not too long. And you pull your hand back. You feel the force of the heat and it's too much. Now, if that flame was sin. Jesus knows the full force of sin, the full force of temptation, and yet he did not move his hand back. He kept it there. Jesus knows the full force of sin, the full power of temptation, and yet he did not give in. He knows the full force and power and temptation of sin, and he remained faithful. When we remove our hand and come back and give in to temptation, and we give in and fall prey to the power and false truth of sin, Jesus remained, and yet he did not sin. He looks at those who sin by accident, those who sin on purpose as rebels, and he feels sympathy in his heart towards every one of us because he knows the sin struggle, and yet he did not give in. He knows the power of sin, and yet he did not yield to it. And so his heart, verse 2 of chapter 5, says and demonstrates gentleness. It means gentle restraint and calmness and, and moderation. He knows our temptation, and yet he was the sinless one. And so Jesus does not throw his arms up in the air when we sin again. There's not rage that is building and color that's coming to his cheeks like a like a comic strip. He's not frustrated or brewing in anger, saying, I'm going to get you. 
He's calm and he's gentle and he's compassionate and he's tender towards those who are suffering and those who are sinning. His heart moves towards you rather than moving away from you. And the Bible teaches us that the biggest source of suffering in our life is our sin, which means that later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, God's heart for us is revealed the way a loving father disciplines his children. God's heart is to discipline us, to drive sin out of our hearts. So how does how does Jesus feel towards you as you sin? Chapter five, verse two, the book of Hebrews says he feels compassion. His heart goes out to you in tenderness and longing. It's like a dam that's about to burst and flood what's before it. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. And then the dam breaks, says Dane Ortland in his book. The dam breaks and the love of God and the compassion of God and the mercy of God flows towards those who are suffering and those who are sinning. Look, when I sin, when we sin, I want to hide. If you imagine God looking down upon you as a, a strict school teacher and you don't know the answer or you make a mistake or there's something that you've done wrong, you don't want to look in their eyes. You don't want to you want to avert your gaze from their eyes. You want to hide behind someone in the chair in front of you. Is that how you view God? Chapter five, verse two says the heart of Jesus is not fierce. It's not forceful. It's not aggressive. God's love is shown in Jesus who looks on the suffering and the sinners with compassion. He doesn't scowl at you. And if you could see this, if I could see this, if I could see the gentleness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus welling up within his heart for me, then that would revolutionize my life and your life when you sin. I could look him in the eye, not avert his gaze. I could look him in the eye when I'm suffering and when I'm sinning. And I could look him in the eye and I could repent. I could say sorry and mean it and turn away from it in his strength. If we could see this, it would break the power of sin over my life and your life too. And look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 verse 11. If you've got a Bible, flip back to it. This is what it says. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, even in your sinning. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. Your sin struggles. Jesus knows what you face. And he does not turn his back on you. He opens up the floodgates of his heart towards you. Do you believe that? If you saw it, then you would do what this passage says. This passage was written to a group of Christians who were struggling to hold fast to Jesus. They wanted to turn away from Jesus and turn back to Judaism. And the applications of this wonderful doctrine of Jesus sticking close to us, of feeling our sufferings, are twofold. Here they are. Number one from this passage of chapter four, verse 14 through five, verse two. The writer says, hold firm, hold firm. 
Christians were facing persecution in the first century. They're attempted to turn away and turn back to Judaism. And verse 14, the writer says, if you see verse 15, the compassionate heart of Jesus, you'll be able to hold firmly to the faith that you profess. Don't give up. Don't turn back. If you see and sense the love of Jesus that enables you to persevere when hardship comes, persevere because God's heart is for you, not against you. Here's the second one. Don't just persevere. Secondly, verse 16 of Hebrews chapter four, come to him, come to him for mercy and for help. If you see Jesus as uh, arms crossed, uh, forehead frowned, finger pointing, you'll never come to him for help. But Jesus is the only one who will help you in your suffering and in your temptation. Don't run from him. Draw close to him when you're tempted. Draw close to him when you're tempted to sin or when you've sinned. Don't hide from him. Draw near to him, verse 16, with confidence. Because he is not because he sacrificed himself for you. That's not the burden of this passage specifically. Draw near to him, this passage says, because he has sympathy for you. These are two pictures on the screen are pictures of people who have had buyer's remorse. Have you ever bought a piece of clothing? Have you ever bought a pet? Have you ever bought a car or even a house? And you've, you've settled into it or you, you're starting to enjoy the relationship. And then you've got buyer's remorse. You think, oh, no, can I take this back? Where's the receipt? Is there any way to get out of this deal? I don't want this anymore. It's not what I hoped for. It's not what I uh, not quite enjoying it as much as I wanted to. Where's the nearest pound to take the dog back to? That kind of type of thing. Jesus never, ever feels that way about you. Jesus never has buyer's remorse. He's never looking for a small print to kind of get out of the relationship. Chapter four, verse 16 says, with confidence, draw near not to the throne of condemnation, draw near to the throne of grace, because Jesus is not ashamed of you, sister or brother, in your suffering, or even when you sin, you can draw near to him. Verse 16 Draw near to him so that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. If you're in need, come to him. If you're being tempted, you can draw near to him. He's the only one who can pull you out of the pit that you're in. Imagine you're in a deep pit and you're not there alone. You're there with other people. No point saying, hey, buddy, can you help me out of this pit? Can you help me to uh, climb up? Because it's too deep for you. You need someone on the outside. You need the only person that has never been in the pit of sin. And the only person that can help you is Jesus. The only one who can rescue you from the fire, like we saw in the kids talk, is Jesus. He's the one, the only one, the sinless one who's not ever been in the pit of sin. And therefore, he's the only one who's your great high priest who's qualified to reach down and to rescue you. Cry out to him this morning. He's with you in your suffering. He's with you in your sinning because he has sacrificed himself for you. Cry out. He won't just support you. He will rescue you. Cry out to him because he's our living Lord. Cry out to him because he's our sympathetic and our great high priest.